Hi, We the People listeners. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. This week, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments by teleconference, allowing the public to listen in, in real time, for the first time in history. The first case the court heard was U.S. Patent and Trademark Office versus Booking.com, which centers on whether Booking.com can trademark its name. Host Jeffrey Rosen was joined by three experts who filed briefs on different sides in this case to explain it and to recap the argument. The National Constitution Center partnered with C-SPAN to broadcast this conversation live following the argument on Monday. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started. C-SPAN friends, welcome to the National Constitution Center and C-SPAN's first town hall discussion of the first live Supreme Court argument in American history. I am Jeffrey Rosen, the president of the National Constitution Center, which is the beautiful building that you see behind me. It's located in Philadelphia on Independence Mall, right across from Independence Hall, where the Constitution was drafted. And like C-SPAN, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit with an inspiring mission from Congress. Our mission is to disseminate information about the Constitution on a nonpartisan basis to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. And with that in mind, we've embarked today on uh, an exciting educational experiment. We have convened America's leading scholars who have filed briefs on both sides of the case that you've just heard, as well as a scholar who filed a brief on behalf of neither party to help us understand the oral arguments that we've just heard. Uh, Justice Holmes, in a famous dissent, once said of the Constitution, it is an experiment, as all of life is an experiment. And you are about to join us in an educational experiment. The arguments that you've just heard are technical. They're the kind that law professors and journalists and citizens often don't listen to closely, but we've just had the privilege of hearing them live. So our job in the next hour is to unpack them and to understand as thoughtfully and in as nonpartisan a spirit as possible what the competing arguments are so that ultimately you, uh, the people of the United States and C-SPAN watchers and and friends from across the country can uh, evaluate the arguments for yourself. I do want you to do some homework after this uh, show, which is to read the briefs in the case. Really, the best way to understand what we just heard is to go to the Supreme Court website, supremecourt.gov. You'll find the briefs right on the homepage under the name of the case. And after our discussion, you can really dig in to the arguments on both sides. Make sure you read the uh, briefs on all sides so that you can make up your own minds. And with that introduction, it's my great pleasure to introduce three of America's leading trademark scholars who will join us today and help us understand the arguments we've just heard. Rebecca Tushnet is the Frank Stanton Professor of the First Amendment at Harvard Law School. She filed a brief of trademark scholars on behalf of neither party in the Booking.com case. Uh, Margaret Duncan uh, filed a brief in support of respondents in the Booking.com case. She is an adjunct professor at Loyola University Chicago School of Law, and she filed a brief on behalf of the Intellectual Property Law Association of Chicago, where she is vice chair of the amicus committee. And Corinne McSherry is legal director at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, uh, which filed a brief in support of the petitioner in booking.com. Rebecca, Margaret, and Corinne, welcome to all of you, and thank you so much for joining. 
wonderful. Um, uh, Rebecca, Professor Tashnet, let's begin with you. First of all, congratulations. Your brief was cited several times during the oral argument, the brief you filed for trademark scholars on behalf of neither party. But before delving into your arguments in that brief, can you please, as concisely as possible, tell us what this case was about? Uh, what were the main legal arguments on both sides? And what are the stakes in the case? Um, so I think the core question uh, is, uh, at what point uh, does the fact that consumers are likely to recognize something that is you know, a generic term for a gr group of goods or services, um, but it has a prominent provider, um, and so people are likely to associate uh, the provider with the generic term. Uh, at what point should that convert into some sort of enforceable trademark right? Um, so we don't want people to get a monopoly on a term just because they're the most uh, well-known provider of it. Uh, but there is a countervailing concern that at a certain point, um, if somebody really is associated with the term, then there's a potential for confusion if other people use the term, even if there are strong reasons they should be free to use the term in some way. So uh, Booking.com is a good example because uh, through you know marketplace success and advertising, um, it has developed a reputation, but it also allows you to make bookings online, which is pretty much what you would expect from any, uh, any online reservation service. Um, and so having control over booking.com presents at least the potential uh, for preventing other people from doing reasonable things like booking.net. Um, and it is, it's actually a, an, a significant judgment call um, whether we should give booking.com basically a tiny little right and then let it see what uh, where the right goes in specific cases, or whether we should say, no, the game is not worth the candle, the risks that'll be asserted anti-competitively are so great that it shouldn't get a tiny little right at all. And this is just a big question in American intellectual property law generally. Thank you so much for that. So I hear you saying that this question of whether by putting .com at the end of a generic term, you should be able to trademark it, uh, and uh, whether that becomes a desc descriptive term is an open question. Uh, we heard in the argument a lot of discussion about what the relevant legal source of authority was. On the one hand, the uh, trademark office argued that uh, this case called Goodyear from the 1880s said that generally you can't trademark a generic term like rubber. Uh, on the other hand, the uh, respondent on the other side arguing for Booking.com said that this federal law, the Lanham Act, passed in the 1940s and amended in the 1980s, uh, came up with a different uh, test, which was the primary significance test. How would people understand the phrase? Would they see it as a generic uh, phrase or as something associated with a particular brand? So those are the kind of arguments we have to unpack. And I'm going to begin in the order that the court did. Uh, friends um, who are watching on C-SPAN, the, the first party is called the petitioner. The, the second one is called the respondent. Here, the petitioner uh, was represented by Erica Ross, who works for the Solicitor General's office for the U.S. government. Uh, and the respondent was uh, Booking.com. We're uh, lucky to have Corinne McSherry, who uh, filed a brief on behalf of the petitioner for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Uh, Corinne, so glad that you're here and I want you to distill 
for our C-SPAN friends, the essence of the petitioner's argument as you understood it at the very end uh, of the case, Erica Ross summed up the claim that uh, a generic term can't be turned into a particular trademark by showing that a number of respondents think it's associated with a particular mark. And she said that the relevant question, and this was at the very beginning of her argument, was that the secondary meaning uh, or the way people uh, understand the term is simply irrelevant. A generic term like booking.com is never trademarkable merely by adding something like .com or Inc. at the end of that name. So uh, distill for us what, in your view, the petitioner's core argument was. Um, I'm happy. I, I will do my best. But um, I will be remiss if I didn't note that, that it's interesting to me that uh, for this oral argument today, we had two women arguing on either side in this historic moment, which is exciting. And then we followed it by this panel, which is also all women. And I think that's notable and, um, and exciting and worth, worth uh, acknowledging. Um, so into the, the I think the, the key um, to the petitioner's argument is, is this. It says, look, under Goodyear, this law from 1888, or this ruling from 1888, it's pretty straightforward that if something is generic, that's it, full stop, we're done. We don't have to get into the primary significance test necessarily. That is something you think about when you're talking about whether something's descriptive or not. But that's not what we have here. We have two, and, and also there's sort of a, you know, two generic terms, um, .com, purely generic, booking, purely generic. This is a purely generic term, full stop. We don't have to get into survey evidence. We don't have to get into all of this stuff the PTO can make a decision that this is a purely generic term and we're done with the argument. And that's essentially what happened here. Um, and I think what I what was interesting to me as I was hearing the, the justices really struggling for a rule. I don't know that they're comfortable saying that Goodyear controls for the internet, but neither did I hear them saying they were comfortable that the Lanham Act controls for the internet. And I think I, I was really hearing them sort of uh, groping for how they should rule, recognizing that whatever decision that they make is going to have enormous consequences for trademark law and the domain name system. And I thought that was very interesting that on the one hand, um, there was a little discomfort, which for I heard with following Goodyear, which obviously I think they can follow Goodyear, that's fine. That was the argument that we made. But also I heard discomfort with following um, the respondents' interpretation of the, the Lamb Act. It was indeed interesting. And uh, as you say, it was Justice Alito who raised precisely that point. He said, what do you think I should do if I think Goodyear is from a different era and doesn't control here, but I also think the Lanham Act was enacted in a pre-internet era and the case law on which Ms. Blatt relies makes sense in that era, but perhaps not our own. Margaret, uh, can you please sum up, uh, in your view, the essential argument that the respondent booking.com is making? What is the test uh, that uh, booking.com is arguing should prevail? And what's your response to Justice Alito's question about whether neither Goodyear nor the Lanham Act may provide clear answers in the age of the internet? Well, um and I wrote an amicus brief on behalf of the Intellectual Property Law Association of Chicago. Um, our view is that the flexible test, what does a particular trademark, um, which is generally, or are a lot of times generally word marks, 
does that mark have a primary significance to the relevant public for those particular goods or services as a brand, as a trademark that's protectable under the statute? Or is that word um, for these particular goods or services primarily just a generic term? And the problem is, um, and in this case, what was raised is, should that be a very bright line test, which is what the US Patent and Trademark Office is arguing for, or should that be a flexible test? And um, the flexible test is actually in the trademark statute itself in um, 15 US code 1064-3. Um, and that test says we look at evidence of what the primary significance of that particular term is to the public. And um, I've been practicing in IP law for 39 years, and we have always looked at what is the evidence? Let's look at the evidence. It's a factual question and determine that answer. We don't use, or we haven't used, I don't think any circuit court has adopted a bright line test to just say, stop, you're out of the game. It's generic, no trademark registration. I think they've always looked at the evidence and used a flexible test, which is enunciated in the statute. So as I hear you helpfully uh, explaining, part of the dispute is whether a generic term can ever be trademark if it acquires secondary meaning as tested by how people understand it, or whether no, the fact that people come to understand a generic uh, term as being associated with a particular brand shouldn't matter. Now, Professor Tushnet, your brief was cited several times, which uh, C-SPAN viewers is unusual for a single brief to be cited uh, during both sides of the argument. So congratulations to Professor Tushnet. But it sounds like part of the dispute was precisely this question. You had expressed some skepticism about the consumer surveys that were used, and you noted, as several of the justices did, that uh, washingmachine.com was mistakenly viewed as a brand by some people in the survey, even though it wasn't. And you thought that that should undermine the conclusion that 70 some odd percent of people uh, understood that booking.com was a particular brand. So tell us more about this empirical dispute and what legal consequences you think that it has for the case. Okay, so here's the basic uh, question, and it really is a policy dispute. I'm not sure that the, that the statute actually answers it. Um, but uh, the, the analogy is, it's a question that tr it turns out a bunch of people find difficult because it's not a layperson's question. Um, whether, because as a practical matter, a dot com is its own, uh, you know, one source. That's how the domain name system works. So people don't think of it as having source significance versus non-source significance. So they find it a hard question to answer. So they, here's the here's the how I think of it. Um, so say you asked a bunch of people to solve a complicated math problem, right? Um, and then uh, and then you look at the people who managed to solve it and then ask some questions of them. And a majority of the people who managed to solve it, uh, a substantial majority, um, also get some other question right. Does that mean that most people got the question right? No, it means that most people who were able to have, understand this other concept got it right. The Unlike most surveys, um, which disqualify a small percentage of people, because there's always some stuff that happens in surveys. People give wrong answers intentionally or accidentally or whatever. They, just, they don't understand something. So you exclude them. That's usually a small percentage. The problem here was even after they trained people on the difference between serial, a generic term, and Kellogg, 
a trademark for a, a producer of uh, cereal. And even after they told people not all dot coms are trademarks, even after that, uh, 33% basically thought, oh, yes, all dot coms are trademarks. Um, and an additional 6% weren't sure. So 40% of people who had, in theory, gotten through this screen didn't couldn't make the distinction. And again, why should they? It's not something that's relevant to them in their daily lives. So that's the question of, are surveys a good way of even getting at the thing we're interested in? Or are they asking a question that is just not fitted for a survey? Um, and I don't think the statute answers that. And so this this is the question. What? How do we determine um, what booking.com means? Is And uh, the, 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 actually the relevant law, I think is much more from a early 20th century case, um, uh, about K Kellogg and shredded wheat. Um, so the issue there was shredded wheat had been patented. Um, people knew one producer of it. So they tended to associate shredded wheat with that one producer. The patent monopoly ended and other people got to make shredded wheat. Could you make it? And could you call it by the name that people have been accustomed to call it by? And the court said uh, in that case that even if there's a powerful association with one producer as a de facto I mean, uh, thing, you still can't prevent other people from using the generic term. So this is, um, uh, I think uh, Margaret's absolutely right that we do do an empirical uh, uh, study, but we have always before had as a backstop, sometimes the empirical question is not enough. Sometimes if there's a good competitive reason to let people use a term, we let them use it subject to a duty not to fool people. So you can use the term, but you have to use your own trademark with it. Things like that. Thank you. That's very helpful. And that is precisely what Justice Breyer said when citing your brief he said the power of the trademark is everyone knows there's one trademark with one name, grocery.com, pizza.com, flowers.com. Maybe that's not so bad if it was the only thing they could use, but there'll be all sorts of lawsuits about ipizza.com for Italian pizza or ebookings.com, essentially that would prevent other companies from using pizza or bookings in their name. And that would create an area of exclusivity that he said might create monopoly power. Now, Corinne, uh, tell us, First of all, one of our questioners, Cassidy Bingle, asks, what is the test Ms. McSherry mentioned? Can you explain it? So do give us a sense of precisely what test you're urging on the court. And then tell us more about the anti-competitive concern that Justice Breyer and, and Professor Tushnet just identified. You're concerned in your brief that if the court rules for booking.com, then no one will be able to use any name that includes booking in it if they have hotels or other um, similar services, and that would give uh, Booking.com a huge and unearned monopoly. Tell us more about that concern. Well, I'm actually, and I'm not even necessarily solely worried about booking. I mean, that's the, that's the company, you know, that's what is at issue here, but it's more a question of obviously the precedent that this is going to set for um, for other companies and, and other situations. Uh, and the, the reality is that in on the internet, and I think many people sort of just understand this intuitively. Whenever you have, you know, generic.com, you're already have, and you've already registered that as a domain name. You've already gotten yourself an enormous commercial advantage, right? So you're, you're you've already put yourself ahead of the game. And historically, the way we think about things like that is we say, and this is uh, on brick and mortar land as well as online. 
is that when you, you, can, you make a choice when you choose a name. Um, you can choose a generic name, and that's going to give you a certain kind of commercial advantage out of the gate because when people are looking for that kind of service, they will go to you more. They will more likely go to you. When you add that, when you've also registered it with .com on top of that, you've cemented a powerful, powerful commercial advantage. But the trade-off for that is that you don't get a trademark in it, right? So you get a certain kind of commercial advantage, but you give up another kind of commercial advantage. And, you know, that's been a, a, a long, the long-standing way of thinking about genericness. Um, the test that I was thinking, that I was referring to, and this is the PTO's argument, but I think it was one that makes sense, is that when we talk about the primary significance um, test and the primary significance question, um, that really comes, and secondary meaning, we've been talking about whether something acquires secondary meaning, that should come in when you have what's called a descriptive mark. But the argument from the PTO is that when you have a purely generic mark, you don't get into the secondary meaning situation. You don't have to get into survey evidence. You don't have to get into all of that. Um, because really, again, it comes back to that choice that a company has made out of the gate that it's going to have a, uh, choose one kind of commercial advantage, that what comes from um, genericness, um, a generic choice for their name, and giving up another kind of commercial advantage that comes with getting a trademark. Um, and so that, I think, is, is the key question here. And the worry that we have is that, not just for Booking.com, but for any other kind of company, that will make this generic choice, they'll register it for the domain name, and then other, kind of comp other companies won't be able to come along and really compete effectively because they, the, the um, trademark owner will already own the domain name and the trademark, and so we've basically closed off a huge amount of space That'll make it very difficult for other folks to come in. And I think that in an era that we have right now where you have a lot of concerns about sort of the tech giants and a lot of concerns about competition in the online space, it seems to me as a matter of policy, any ruling that, that cements that anti-competitive situation is, is a dangerous one um, for the internet. And really that's, that's who we, my organization represents is internet users, small business owners, um, who are really, you know, looking, and we also generally try to protect competition online because we think that's how you get better innovation. Um, the danger of this situation is, is you know, we're going to undermine that kind of competition. Thank you for that. Thank you for explaining your test, just to repeat it, to make sure we all understand it, that this primary significance test should be relevant for a descriptive mark, but not for a generic mark. If you have a generic thing like booking or weather, you shouldn't get into the question of how people understand it. It's only when you have a, a, something that is uh, more descriptive of the product being described. Um, let me ask you, Margaret, um, what would be the consequence of a ruling uh, against you? Uh, uh, Lisa Blatt, who was arguing for the respondent, said there are already plenty of these generic marks that have a .com uh, trademark, weather.com, dating.com, breakfast.com, and she suggested that all of those could be challenged if the court... Uh, ruled uh, against Booking.com, and Justice Ginsburg asked the same question. Uh, it was her very first question out of the gate. She said, who could apply to cancel existing registrations? And then that led to a question of whether even trademarks for things like 1-800-Bookings, or as Justice Breyer said, for a particular address, 1445thstreet.com, uh, could be challenged. 
if the court uh, rules against Booking.com. So, so tell us about your response to the practical effects of a ruling against you. Right. I, I heard in the oral arguments, and I want to um, also express that I thought both women did a remarkable job, just an outstanding job on the historic oral arguments today that were for the first time in the history of the court by telephone, which is a difficult thing to do. And then to do such an excellent job was just remarkable for me. Um, I do want to say that trademarks are tricky. And whether a word is generic or whether a word is descriptive is a factual issue. And we need a test so that you can determine that answer um, whether you are at the Patent and Trademark Office or whether you're in front of a jury or a judge. Um, I think a flexible test, again, works well. I think if you had a bright line test that said, oh, this mark is generic, that's the end of the story, we're not going to look at any evidence. And by the way, the evidence can be other things than surveys. It can be uh, newspaper articles and magazine articles, it can be dictionary definitions, it can be a lot of different evidence. But the, the truth of the matter is, in this case, the survey evidence showed that 75% of consumers, um, whether the survey was flawed or not, um, that 75% of com consumers in this particular survey um, thought that um, Booking.com was a brand, not generic. But the tricky part is there's a sliding scale of trademarks. Um, there are very highly protectable trademarks that are completely coined words or arbitrary and fanciful words that have no real meaning like Xerox. And then there are words like Apple that do have a meaning, but when combined with a good or service that doesn't have anything to do with apples, the fruit, they're very highly protectable because an apple doesn't tell you that the goods or services are computers. What's interesting is descriptive marks tell you something about the goods or services, but they don't necessarily tell you completely what they are. So if we had clothing that had apples all over it, would that be protectable with the trademark Apple because it does describe a feature of the goods or services? Um, that's the question of trademarks. That's why it would seem that in all trademark law, a flexible test, which is what is the primary significance of that? word or term to the consuming public and um, is that just purely the generic word there's no other way to describe that goods or services than that word or is it descriptive and if it's descriptive um, the flexible test really works well to determine that because it's factual it's not subject to bright line yes or no it really does have to be looked at based on the evidence does if i say um I made a booking today. Do you know if I bet on a football game? Do you know if I reserved an airline ticket? Do you know if I was just hitting the books hard and I was booking it today? I mean, it's really um, a factual question that a jury or in this case, the PTO examiners have to determine. And I think a flexible test is the best one to apply. Thank you for that. Thank you also for noting what a superb job both women did in the case. And also, it's striking how successful the arguments were. It was unusual. Ordinarily, of course, advocates are asked questions by whatever justices they like. It's a very intimate give and take. It's very conversational. Here we had a formal running down of the justices in order of seniority. All of the justices asked questions, including Justice Thomas. 
Uh, and uh, they were quite respectful of each other. They made some jokes. They said good morning. But generally, it was a, with the occasion of one or two pauses where someone was getting off of mute, the whole thing ran pretty smoothly. So with that, Professor Tushnet, let's dig into the questions by the justices that struck you as most significant. Uh, the very first question out of the argument was that of Chief Justice Roberts. He said, counsel, you mentioned the Goodyear case, but you didn't quote the language from the trademark statute it issued here. The primary significance of the mark to the public shall be the primary criteria. He said the Goodyear case had a different test. Shouldn't this statute, which came uh, later for the 1940s, as amended in the 1980s, matter more than Goodyear? Um, what was the significance of that question? And, and more generally, which questions by the justices would you like to share with our uh, viewers and friends as being especially significant? So um, I actually think that first question uh, is a really helpful one, uh, and it connects this case to actually a, a broader thing going on in the court, which is um, the sort of read the manual theory of uh, statutory and constitutional interpretation. So uh, I think it's actually rather unfortunate, um, but uh, the court is increasingly taking the position that uh, the statutes and the Constitution like clearly mean one thing, just read them, can't you see? Um, and th this means that th they often struggle in cases uh, involving things like the Lanham Act, where the Lanham Act is actually explicitly enacted on top of about 100 years, give or take, of American decisions creating a common law of trademark and unfair competition. And so um, the court does not have the best tools or has abandoned some of the tools in the judicial basket for dealing with uh, statutory language that has some sort of common law basis or you know, was enacted against a backdrop of making certain specific changes to the common law. Um, and the primary significance test is actually a great one. And uh, fortunately, the justices' discussion indicated that they actually were pretty clear on what had happened, which was in, um, in the early 80s, a uh, court had invalidated the trademark on the game for Monopoly uh, on the theory that uh, consumers wanted the game Monopoly, which they understood to be a unique product, uh, and therefore it wasn't a valid trademark because the product was unique. This reasoning is problematic because it also applies to my beloved Diet Coke, um, which is in fact unique, although it is just a type of soda as well. Um, so Congress wanted to make sure that no one could say, well, because people want the taste of Diet Coke, Diet Coke is not a valid trademark. Um, and the, so they didn't actually address, the, the amendment didn't really address the question here, which is um, if it's not because it's unique, but because it refers to pre-existing meaning, is that generic? How, how, how do we figure out what, what that means? And so um, primary significance makes sense um, when you're asking, do you think that monopoly refers to a specific game from a specific producer? It doesn't necessarily make sense when you're talking about shredded wheat, you know, which just which until a year ago had only one producer. Corinne, um, I want to make sure I understand, and all of our viewers do, the precise difference between the five categories of trademarks uh, listed in order of distinctiveness and protectability, first generic, second descriptive, third suggestive, four arbitrary, and five fanciful. I feel like I'm back in a wonderful English literature class, but just so we're all learning together, 
remind us one more time exactly what the difference between a generic and a descriptive mark is, and then tell us why it is that as things become more specific, more suggestive, more arbitrary, and more fanciful, it's more okay to trademark them, and then maybe call out a question from a justice that you found especially significant or telling. Okay. <laughs> That's a lot of stuff. It is, but we got to understand it. Well, let me, let me get to the, what I think is the, the key issue here with, with trademarks. The idea is that we, we want to have a spectrum of, we want to have a spectrum from purely generic to, um, to purely fanciful. And I do think that the line between generic and descriptive can get kind of tricky um, to, to, to figure out. But the, the, the sort of core question that's always confronting the PTO and trademark owners and all of us who are working in the space is the more you get, the more something is purely fanciful, purely arbitrary, the more it looks like it's fine for that to be um, um, owned, you know, technically owned, controlled by a particular entity because it's not going to impede competition. It's going to do what trademarks are supposed to do, which is identify the source of a good so that consumers are in a position where they can say like, yes, I want Coca-Cola. I don't want Pepsi. I don't like Pepsi. I want Coca-Cola. So Coca-Cola is more fanciful and it's got, and there's the logos associated with and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and it helps consumers make that choice that they are choosing the particular kind of um, particular brand that they want and that, you know, and it will taste a certain kind of way. And that's what they're after um, <clears throat> without controlling language. And that's really what the, a lot of the, the troubles with trademark are is but what you don't want to have is a situation where somebody can really own control too much of, of language altogether. One of the things that, that I think is interesting here is that, you know, a thing that booking.com could do, um, they could have fanciful logos and they could trademark those. And then they, and the, no one's really arguing about that. It's only when you're, when you're talking about something where it's like, it's um, purely .com is just, it's like company. It's like any other thing. And it is, in fact, .com was designed to be equivalent to company or incorporated when the domain name system was was established. That was the basic idea. Um, in terms of a question that I think is was interesting, I, again, I what to me what I saw is a whole series of questions where I saw the judges being worried. They're worried about the implications of this ruling for um, for for the internet. What are what situation are they going to create? Um, for for uh, companies down the line, how do they come up with a rule that isn't going to set up um, a few companies in a position of being able to shut down all of their competitors? And I think that the answers that I heard were not completely satisfying. So, for example, there's an idea, well, these kinds of trademarks aren't really litigated all that often, but if you're a small company and you can't afford that litigation, you know, that's full stop for you. Right, and a lot of times, what happens too is that things don't get litigated because um, they get shut down before they ever get to litigation, and that's the kind of situation that I worry about. Um, and the thing, I, uh, the other thing that I heard is that what, because I heard a number of questions too, of like, well, what does Booking.com really need this for? What's the point? They've already got this commercial advantage already. What are we really fighting about here for them? What are the stakes for them? And I thought it was interesting that. Um, um, Ms. Um, Ms. Blatt said, well, what we really want is to be able to, be able to bring in REM actions. And that's interesting because what that's, what, 
the shorthand for that is these are situations where you go to court and you want to go after someone offshore and get an order from the court, basically um, trying to shut down access to that website. And that's a very, you know, powerful uh, or um, burgeoning area of law, effectively site blocking um, injunctions from courts. And I thought that was telling because I didn't see that in the briefing, but I think that's actually really what booking.com wants. They want the ability to go and shut down offshore copycat sites via site, site blocking orders. And that's really the stakes here. And I think that's very interesting as well. Well, Margaret, it's worth uh, responding to that suggestion. Is that what Booking.com wants, the ability to shut down off-site marks? And I'm going to ask one more time because I, I need to make sure I understand the distinction in order to be able to explain it. The, the, the distinction between generic and descriptive terms, the PTO's brief says that a term that begins as generic or becomes generic over time can never be trademarked. By contrast, a descriptive term which describes the quality of a goods or service like after tan, post tanning lotion or yellow pages can be protected as trademark, but only if the registrant shows it's gotten a secondary meaning. It's become distinctive of the fact that it's the yellow pages, which everyone recognizes. And then the question in this case is whether in the age of the internet, it would become too easy to turn a generic phrase like booking into a descriptive one simply by the fact that you, you spend a lot of money advertising and people come to associate it with a particular website. So responses both to uh, to uh, Corinne's concern and also an attempt to help us understand that distinction and why you're not concerned that the internet world changes the distinction between generic and descriptive terms any more than it is in the non-internet world. Right. Well, the trademark statute, um, 15 U.S. Code, was definitely not written with the internet in mind. In fact, the internet did not exist that I know of in the 40s when the Lanham Act was first enacted by Congress. I think that um, to have one rule for trademarks for dot-coms as opposed to another rule for other types of trademarks is a slippery slope. I don't think that necessarily booking.com, I mean, certainly all trademark owners want to shut down copycat sites or false sites that are pretending to be them, but you're not really getting the generic, you're, you're getting a copycat, you're not getting the genuine goods or services. And they want to shut that down, especially to protect the consuming public from not getting the same quality of goods or services on a copycat site that you might get on the real site. Um, but I think their main goal is really to protect their brands, just like Coke wants to protect or Pepsi wants to protect their brand so that every time you use that particular product, you'll get the same quality. I think booking.com is really trying to say, if you come to this website, booking.com, as opposed to another reservations or hotel or um, reservation service, you'll get the same quality of services every time. And I think that's why they're trying to protect it as a brand. It does have some distinctive logo design as well. I, I recall that in the Patent and Trademark Office, the applications actually are for distinctive colors in the mark and other designs of the mark. But at the bottom line, they want to protect that as their brand so that when Jeffrey or Rebecca or Corinne or I go to that site, we'll get the same quality of services every time as a brand. Well, it's time for closing arguments in this completely rich and rigorous discussion, which is all that uh, I hoped it would be. The Supreme Court ended uh, pretty well on time, and we will too. Uh, Rebecca, 
final thoughts, including I'm curious about um, to what degree are the policy considerations that we've discussed, namely the fear that a particular company like Booking.com could essentially monopolize the name and draw out competitors, to what degree are those legally relevant? Is there any room under the Lanham Act under, or under the court's precedent for the justices to take those into account? And although I do not want you to predict because we are here to learn rather than to be pundits, maybe you could sum up based on the oral argument you just heard uh, the major considerations that different justices expressed that you think might be significant as they help to decide the case. So, uh, thank you. Just very quickly, I, I do want to say uh, that um, everybody used trademark as a synonym for register. It's actually not really the same thing. And I did it too. Uh, um, but uh, there are a lot of trademark lawyers feeling a little sad right now uh, because the oral arguments uh, conflated trademark with registration. And this is actually a, a, a point related to the core of the case, which is um, even if you don't have a registration, there are circumstances where you can act against bad actors. And so I think the court was sensitive to these uh, questions of monopolization and what are the appropriate remedies. And, you know, if Booking.com is asking for such a tiny, tiny right, and it's not objecting to all these other legitimate competitors, what is it actually asking for? Like, why, you know, why is it here if, if, if the right will not extend uh, past exact copies, which, and, and I think Margaret is, I think is, is exactly right about, um, what they're interested in. But of course they have the registration, the domain name registration for booking.com. So they can completely control the quality of the services they deliver. There is no problem that, that trademark is able to, or necessary for solving in terms of what's on booking.com. Um, so I think the justices are going to be struggling with, um, reconciling what booking is asking for with the kind of core justifications for trademark policy. And uh, I think they will want to say that the statutory language answers it uh, completely, but since it doesn't, they will inevitably have to do something. Um, and I won't predict because I, I don't think it's predictable. Wonderful. Thank you very much. They will have to say the statutory language covers it, but it doesn't. So they will have to do something as a wonderful summary of the <laughs> challenges that face the court. Uh, Corinne, this is a sort of closing argument for the petitioner side, but uh, based on what the oral argument you just heard, uh, why do you believe that the court should adopt the rule you've argued for? And what in the argument that you just heard makes you think that they might? So I... Um I think there's no getting away from this um, decision, whatever decision they make, as being a policy decision. They have to make a choice. And when they make this decision, they're, they're going to have to look for, they should, uh, consider what's the most pro-competitive move we can make. We, what, when we think about trademark, trademark policy has always, always tried to take into account the risk of over-controlling language the risk of and the risk of shutting down competition unfairly. Um, they also need to look at what are the other tools in Booking.com's toolkit because they'll want to think about what are the consequences for them. And of course, Booking.com has many other tools in its toolkit, as Professor Professor uh, Tushnet has pointed out. And you can look to unfair competition law, um, and and you can also just look at the economic advantage that it already has. Taking all of that into account, it seems to me that what the court should do is follow one of the sort of bedrock trademark um, uh, policy choices, 
which is that when you have made a choice, when you set up your business to adopt a generic name, you have to accept the consequences of that choice. Um, and that, you know, the advantage that gives you commercially combined with the advantage that you get when you've already registered the domain name um, is, is enormous. And I think that that should be more than sufficient to satisfy any, um, any company, including Booking.com. Thank you so much for that. Margaret, last word to you. Why do you think the court should adopt the rule that uh, Booking.com has urged? And what did you hear in the argument that makes you think that they might? Well, again, as, as you pointed out, Jeffrey, right out of the um, gate, Justice Roberts asked a very important question, whether it should be um, what the primary significance of a particular term is to the public to determine whether a mark is generic or whether it's descriptive and can function as a registered trademark as a brand and can be protected as by registration. Um, and he, he asked, why would we apply a 130-year-old Supreme Court case, the Goodyear case, um, that really didn't take into account a statute and really didn't take into account the Internet, certainly. Um, and why shouldn't we look to the statute, the primary significance test? And I think that's what most of the circuits have been doing. Could all of the circuit courts be wrong on that test for whether a mark's generic or descriptive. But we do need a test, and I think that's the tough part. I think the other concern that was raised is, Justice Ginsburg said, rightly so, what will this do to so many registered marks? And particularly, I, I think about not-for-profits and how they do lean toward using more descriptive marks because they want to tell their supporters something about the cause that the supporter is supporting. And um, I think it would have a very devastating effect on a lot of those not-for-profit, very descriptive marks. Um, but that said, I, I do think a flexible test is the one that um, we should always lean towards um, when we're looking at statutory interpretation and not probably a 130-year-old case that came before the statute. Thank you so much, uh, Margaret Duncan, Rebecca Tushnet, and Corinne McSherry for an exciting beginning to this great educational experiment. We have expressed confidence that citizens of the United States are engaged enough to take the time to dig into these complicated legal arguments, to learn about the best arguments on both sides, and to make up their own minds. Um, I am sobered by your uh, note about the marks of nonprofits, and of course I need to urge citizens to go to constitutioncenter.org, which may or may not be trademarkable under the test of booking.com, to learn more. Go to the Interactive Constitution, this amazing online learning platform that brings together the best liberal and conservative scholars in the country to explore every clause of the Constitution, describing what they agree about and what they disagree about. And go to Article 1, uh, Section 8, Powers of Congress, and read about the constitutional basis of the trademark clause in the clause which gives Congress the power to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. You can read scholars describing what they agree and disagree about that and every other clause of the Constitution. And of course, because it's the Constitution Center, you have some homework. Before you come back tomorrow for the oral argument, please read the briefs in the case. Now you have 
24 hours to do it. That's more than enough time. And go to the Supreme Court website, supremecourt.gov. Click on the briefs. You don't have to read every word. I know they're long. But if you skim the essence of the arguments on both sides and read the amicus briefs, that's the friend of the court briefs, as well as the main party briefs, then you'll be as well prepared to discuss these cases as we have been. And I am so grateful, again, to our three panelists for doing such a able job in educating us about these complicated legal issues. Rebecca, Corinne, and Margaret, thank you so much for joining. And C-SPAN friends, look forward to seeing you tomorrow. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was engineered by Greg Sheckler and me, Jackie McDermott, and produced by me. Research was provided by Robert Black and Lana Ulrich. The National Constitution Center, in collaboration with C-SPAN, recapped all of the arguments heard this past week. You can watch the rest of those recaps on our YouTube channel. The Supreme Court will hear additional arguments next Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, starting at 10 a.m. Eastern. And immediately following those arguments, Jeff will be back on C-SPAN to recap them with some of the leading experts involved in the cases. So please tune in. And as always, please join us back here on the podcast next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jackie McDermott.